So I, um, I've been away a lot this summer, and that was planned. I didn't get in trouble. Uh, I, just, I just find that in my role as directional pastor, it's important that I just kind of can get some space sometimes to uh, rejuvenate, recuperate, recover, and even kind of focus on some things that I even need to be working on personally. And I've been, uh, first off, this year going into it, like, I turned 40 in a month, all right? Now, um, they say that 40 is the new 30. I don't believe them. Like, I feel like 40 is like 50. Like, I I feel it in my body. Uh, I have bottles of Tums in my house. Um, and, um, and, And so as me and Suzanne were thinking about this year and getting older, we're like, what could we do to really, really help us slow down and center our lives so that we could step more into growing older? And so we both agreed the best way to do that is by having another child. Um, we didn't do that, but we're having another child. Uh, yeah. So, yes, there's, my, there's our pregnancy um, announcement. Um, and we're, we're excited. This, this is going to be a great child. Can't wait. And, and at the same time, we're, you know, like, she's 37, I'm 40. We're having to, like, go, like, we got we to gotta figure some things out here. Charlotte, if you know my daughter, she's five years old, and she could make best friends with that wall. Like, her and that wall would be BFFs forever. She has no attachment disorder whatsoever uh, in that way. So I'm, I'm excited about that, and we're just thinking through about what all that looks like. Um, and, and so that said, uh, I realized that I've got to really do some things to kind of center myself. And what I knew was is that that also means I've got to face some things in myself, which isn't a comfortable thing to do. It isn't a comfortable thing to go, you know what I want to do? I want to face trauma from my childhood. I want to face, you know what I mean, this experience here. I want to face this thing I keep carrying with me. Because the reality is, though, wherever you go, there you are. Like, you never get to outrun the thing in your life. There, it's a lie to move on. Um, it's, it's not true. We, we may want to convince ourselves it's true, but then there's a reason why that we want to keep checking out with food and drink and sex and ambition, because nothing's ever enough, because wherever you go, there you are. And so I just saw myself, I felt kind of stuck back in March, and, and having the therapist I have, he was like, yeah, you just need to go work on yourself more and and go away, and, and so that's what I did. I, he's like, go to this place in Kentucky that's remote, and no one's near you, and like, it wasn't like, there were other people there. It wasn't like I went and pitched a, a tent, you know what I mean? Um, but like, go away and kind of do some work on you. And so all that being said, what I found was is that this is stuff I've been doing in my life personally for years, but it kind of even went to another level of having to face life, because it's important that all of us learn how to face our life, that I grew up believing that life would just work itself out, that if I just kind of lived my life and was faithful at some point in time, life would work out. I thought that I would naturally get smarter and naturally get smarter. I'm sorry, naturally get smarter and naturally grow healthier. Like I just thought those things would happen. And then I got to my mid-30s and I realized I was still in arrested development in many ways. I found that I was still making poor decisions and like I still didn't know how to do with my life. And I was, I was a, a Bible junkie. I knew how to interact with scriptures, but I couldn't rub enough Bible on my life to make it work. And so as we are continuing in this series, 
this meta series through Acts, and if you've been with us longer than a minute, like this has been a long series, and we're doing that on purpose. We want to be really faithful to these texts. But as we've been journeying through for the last 10 months through the book of Acts, we've done these mini-series where we try to break it down in bite size. And so we are in the second week of this mini-series called Facing Life. And what we find is, is that Paul is headed back to Jerusalem, and he's going to face a lot of things there that have been waiting for him ever since he left. And I think that we'll also find in our lives that there's a lot of things that are waiting for us if we're willing to face it, if we can find the courage to face it. And so I want us to just kind of center on that. And with that said, I think there's two things that I want us specifically to think about facing this morning. And, I, and here's, I really hated the title of the sermon series at first, even though I named it, because all I could think about was that movie, Facing the Giants, all right? Just be, just be grateful I'm not cheesy evangelical, all right? Because otherwise, you would have to sit in here and face your giants. We're not saying that. Okay. I do know places that do that. God bless them. All right. So the two things that I want us to think about having to face, I think they're really important, that come out in this text. One is this, that for us to face the harm that we've caused as a church, I think that's here. I think that's something we have to learn how to face, to own it. And then two, to face the harm that you've received from the church. Face the harm that you've received from the church. So that said, let's just try to center ourselves around this text and what's happening specifically in context. We and I'll read it here in a second, but what we find is that Paul has already made the journey back to Jerusalem, and he's wanting to go back for a couple of things. Uh, One, he's been collecting alms all over Asia Minor, all over these churches in the Greco-Roman world, and bringing it back to the mothership to say, hey, these churches really believe in what's happening, and they want to, like, celebrate and nourish this kind of central nervous system here. But the second thing that was even more important to him it was Shavuot. Everybody say Shavuot. It's a fun word to say. I always love preaching about Shavuot. We call it Pentecost, all right? Um, but the original Hebrew word for this is Shavuot. And Shavuot happened uh, seven weeks uh, after Passover. And uh, there were kind of two parts to Shavuot and why it was so important. Now, this was one of the three big holidays if you were a Jewish person. And that means like pilgrimages where you would go to Jerusalem and it was important that you like went there and experienced everything in person. Um, and with Shavuot, it centered around two things. One, it was a time of harvest, specifically of wheat and grain. So you would harvest all the wheat and grain and have a huge celebration um, and going into the summer. But the second thing that really was so powerful is that Shavuot was a time to recognize when God, seven weeks after, seven weeks after God freed the Hebrew people from slavery, they found themselves like at base camp of Mount Sinai. And that God now, Yahweh, is coming down on the mountain and Moses is going up the mountain to meet with God. And seven weeks after they're wandering around in this desert of Sinai, God comes and meets them. And when Moses comes down, he brings these tablets with him. And on these tablets are these words from God, these words of what God is wanting in relationship with them. It was like a marriage ceremony. That's what it was. That's how they conceived. That's what they thought of when they thought of Shavuot. It was like this wedding ceremony. It's when God said, no, you are officially mine. 
And then if you do these things, I'm officially yours, just like you do in a wedding ceremony. Like I promise and I vow to do these things. And then the person says the same thing back. So it's a really beautiful thing. And, and it wasn't just a bunch of rules or right or wrong. It was about, hey, this is what God has done for us. And out of the merit of God and what he's done for us, we want to live these ways in relationship with this God. So it was a big, big deal. It's like the, in a sense, what we would even call the christening, the baptism of something so wonderful and beautiful. And what makes Pentecost so interesting is that the fire simply just moved down from the mountain on top of every human being that was in that upper room. So the fire came down, and now God's ways and his covenant is in the hearts of every person who's in relationship with him. So Paul is making the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for Shavuot, for now Pentecost. And we find that when he gets there, he runs into James and the other elders. Now remember, James, brother of Jesus, is an apostle in the early church, but also an elder of the church, specifically here in Jerusalem. And he and Paul have had their moments where they've gotten cross with each other, but also have come to learn that, in a sense, like a left and a right perspective, how to live in the messy middle together. Paul was someone who, like, and you heard this from Jamin last week, like he, he left all these kind of almost like fundamental roots of sorts to then expand what he felt was always encapsulated in his faith and go into the Greco-Roman world and share this faith that was so meaningful to him of a Messiah who had lived and died and risen. And yet he was finding these people were not converting to Judaism, but in a sense just following Jesus. And so we find, and we preached this message uh, back in the fall, and, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's a really important message, I think, but around um, Acts 15 and how they learned how to have this discourse and interaction that was really healthy of having two separate sides. So there's James, and there are the elders. Paul comes back, but Paul also brings some Greek men with him. And like he's coming to Shavuot with these Greek men who aren't Jewish. And so they're going, listen, there's like, there's like a, a target on your back, Paul. You just need to be careful. Like when you step out here, you're not just simply going to celebrate this special holiday. Like people are going to be watching you. Be careful. And so we find that Paul does something, I think, really humble. There's a group of men there, and it was really common to do this, who were making what was called a Nazarite vow. Like they were going to make this vow to go, we are going to um, center ourselves around fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord and then we're going to go to the temple together and cleanse ourselves for seven days. And, and that's how we're going to enter into Shavuot. And Paul's like, I'll do it. Like, I'll do it. Which shows that Paul's not trying to be needlessly controversial. Like, Paul understands, like, like to a Greek, I'm a Greek. To a Jewish person, I'm a Jewish person. And that's how it works. So we find that Paul's going like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take the vow as well. And so this is where we, we pick up that they then go to do seven days of cleansing themselves at the temple. And then we read in verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Now stop. First off, it's Jews from the province of Asia. These aren't even local Jews. Like these are Jews who've known about Paul. Somehow they've seen him in other places he's been in like in Athens or in Ephesus or Galatia, and they're like, hey, yo, that's that dude. 
That's that dude. That's that guy. That's the guy that like we got all upset about, right? And so like people even on the outside who are like visiting, this is how hated Paul is. People are visiting and they see him and go, uh-uh, we're done with this guy. So they say, it says they stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him. And it says, for those of you who aren't helping us seize him, it says, fellow Israelites, help us. Now, what a mob mentality. Just think about this. Like you walk into a room and somebody's like, hey, that's that snitch I don't like, all right? So then they, they confront you. But then there's other people who are fine with you until they go, hey, this is the guy I don't like. Let's all jump him right now. And so like they get the crowd riled up to come and to seize him, to help us. And then they say, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere. Like how much hyperbole is there? Everyone, everywhere. It's like when you say you always or never, right? You get in those fights with your spouse. You're like, you always do this. You never do this, right? You don't, you don't, whatever, you do that. All right, so everyone, everywhere against our people and our law and this place, like they cover it all. Against our people and this law and this place. Like they really don't like Paul. And it goes on, and besides, and by the way, and besides, just to boot, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Like, they're really against him. They really have a problem. And then we find in verse 30, the whole city was aroused, not some of the city, the whole city was aroused, and people came running from all directions. It's like some kind of zombie apocalypse movie at this point. Like people are losing their minds, throwing their pots down, their children down, and just running and screaming their heads off. That's the picture I get, right? Like just lose their minds and run after this guy to seize him. And they drag him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. And there's your story. <laughs> like how hated are you if you're Paul? How disliked are you if you're a Paul? And yet, what has he done to receive all of this? Truly, what has he done? Like, he's going around making insults about everybody, telling them, like, what an income poop they are, telling them what, you know, you're an idiot. I don't, whatever. Like, no. Is Is he doing that? Is he talking about family members and, like, spitting on them? No. Paul is going around this known world trying to expand the imagination of who this God is that was had to be centrally located to a specific homogenous group of people and go, wait a second, this God is for everyone everywhere. And they don't like it. And it riles them up and they find that they have to come running like WWE him, right? Like, we got to go run to this guy and body slam him, and he must be ended. All because he wants to expand their thinking. Now, on their side, what they're thinking is this, though. He's not simply expanding our thinking. He's monkeying with 2,000 years' worth of traditions. He's monkeying with things that you aren't supposed to, to mess with. There's always two sides of your story. Like, they're not just these trying to be horrible people, but yet there is a real lack of perspective what's happening here. Like, if, if the thing that the person crossed you over leads you to having to kill them, what are we missing here? 
if at some point in time your rage takes you, like at some point in time you get into a fight with your spouse or a friend, and then it leads you to be like, I'm done with you, I want nothing to do with you, and the whole fight started with like, because like you, you know, like you made a comment that wasn't nice, because like you ate their, you know, favorite cereal and didn't save them any milk. Like sometimes we get into those moments where it just gets out of control, and we find that's what's happening here. And these people, the irony is this, these people had a religion that was founded upon being freed from slavery out of the graciousness with God. And yet here's where they find themselves acting. It's a very sad irony. And yet it's also somewhat familiar. Because I believe this is where we have to kind of face the harm we've caused. I think this is what it comes down to. If us as a church, people in the church, we get so consumed with having to be 100% right about things. This is the exact thing it has to be. This is the exact way it has to look. This is the exact approach because everybody else approached it this way for this long. It was passed down from this person to this person to this person to this person. And so therefore, if we ever see any movement or change or evolving, whatever you want to call it that happens within our faith community, a lot of times we can tend, at least internally, to lose our minds, to have to get away from it, to not know what to do with it. We only know how to be against things, not for things. Because if you're not at the same place I am, then that means in my own internal shame narrative, somehow then I'm wrong, but I can't be wrong because I have to have the right theology, the right worldview, the right approach. Like everything has to be right And this is what we project to the world around us. That we have it right inside here. We have the right views of life. We have the right views of sexuality. We have the right views of even politics. So if you come inside these rooms, what you'll do is you'll find yourself right. And yet, this is what I think is happening in this passage. If you take that mentality to the telos, which they had about 2,000 years of this time to take that view to the telos to the end, I think what it ends up being is a bunch of people like running after other people just wanting to kill them. I think that's how it ends up. I think that's what this is actually trying to show us in some ways. That if we're so convinced of having a right that that's what my theology and faith with God is about, then just so you know, here's your future. You will have to be so against a person because they're so in your way and they're so infringing upon like what you want and because you can't keep yourself homogenous enough, eventually you have to just get away from it by like killing them. Which is why a lot of you are here. A lot of you are here because you've come from places and churches and spaces that worked for you until it stopped working. Like it worked until it didn't work. Like it worked for you until you came out as gay. Or it worked for you until you were a woman who wanted to lead. Or it worked for you until you started doing therapy, God forbid. Or it worked for you until you realized you had different views around scripture and life and there was no room for conversation. 
those are the stories I've heard. And I think that's sad that it's so common that a lot of us find ourselves in this place that we were in places that really were like bait and switch. Oh, yeah, 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 we really welcome you, but ultimately you got to see it our way because we're going to create like this homogenous view of how this has to work from this top place down. We're not going to be willing to wrestle with the things and go, oh, you follow Jesus too, and maybe you just kind of see things differently than I do. Oh, okay. Because for a lot of us here, what you found was that those places, although they were trying to be helpful, just really really ended up being harmful. I don't think anybody in their right mind, unless they truly deal with the sickness inside, is trying to be purposely harmful, just so you know. I don't think that's how people wake up in the morning. But that's what ends up happening. And not only that, I think that what you did is you took a chance maybe at one point in time to be known, and then it just spit in your face. Which is why there's this line from Pete Enns in his book, The Sin of Certainty, which Pete came and did a rabbit hole lecture here, but it's really simple and to the point. He said, church is too often the most risky place to be spiritually honest. How crazy is that? Like, this is the most risky place. The place that's not the most risky is the bar down the street. That's not the most risky place. This is the most risky place. Because there's the chance at some point in time, people are going to look at you and run at you and try to body slam you and kill you. Like, that's what it seems like it's getting across here. I mean, that's not like our vision statement at Christ City. (laughs) But it's like, this seems to be the potential. We've talked about this a lot, and matter of fact, we're even like trying to curate a, and create a video that's going to go on our beliefs page for this, but you've probably talked about this thing called the pendulum that we feel like expresses what we're trying to be about here. And when you look at this pendulum, what you find is there is a, a right and a left perspective, and that both of those perspectives used to be able like, to have conversations, and eventually they had to kind of move out to their own echo chambers, but then there's a lot of people, and I would say a lot of you in this room, if you're here I don't think you're here because everybody's going to believe what you believe. I think what happens, a lot of people want to go back to the messy middle and learn to have conversations. What that takes is respect. What that takes is not seeking to be heard, but seeking to hear. What that takes is not demanding, but instead offering your presence. So why don't we do it? Well, I think it's because it's scared. Because what if you try to change my thoughts and beliefs? You know, a lot of people don't want to spend time with the person who's not like them because they're so used to a hoodwink mentality that they're convinced that the other person's going to have like an agenda. I don't think people know what to do with the church and leaders at this church where like there's not an agenda. I really am okay if you don't become a partner. I'm really okay if you stay and I'm really okay if you leave. I'm really okay if you want to invest your life here, and I'm really okay if you say you want to quit church. Like, I don't want you to do those things, but I want you, like, I'm okay. And I'll say something even more absurd that I've, trust me, this isn't like in the moment emotional, okay? This is something I've processed a lot. I'm okay if this church shut down in a year or two. We're not going to, don't worry. But I'm okay with that because 
this isn't the point. Us sitting around, a person sitting in front of us with a mic, having some things to say, us clapping our hands, singing a few songs. This isn't the point. This is just the start. The point is the conversations that we learn to have with one another around the Christ who has changed our lives, or at least we're wanting to change our lives. That's it. We're not trying to build some kind of empire here. We want to like take care of our budget and create a space for people to belong and know God, full stop. But that means we have to own how we've been harmful. That don't hurt we've been harmful. Second thing I think I see here that we have to face is that we have to own the harm we've experienced and received. I am not going to give you three points of how to do this. All right? I'm going to tell you up front, if you've been a person who's been deeply harmed by the church, you better take it slow, get you a good therapist, and get ready for a long time before you're healed. <laughs> you're like, why are you laughing? About I don't know why I'm laughing. It's a nervous laugh. <laughs> this is a hard one. You know, somebody said to me recently, after they heard a lot of my stories of the way I've been harmed in the church, um, they were like, how did you stay a Christian? And I said, well, I didn't. I mean, I am now but I didn't at times. It's just people didn't know. Like, you know, I was 25, and I quit. But kind of hard to quit out loud when you just got off the mission field. You know? People been throwing money your way to get you to go do things and carry the gospel, and then you're like, I'm done. That's not the, that's not the letter you want to send out to supporters. <laughs> Here's how your money was used. I'm done. <laughs> and it definitely isn't what I wanted to do at 35, like there's a pattern developing here, like 25, 35. Um, Y'all talk to me at, at when I turned 44. But anyway, joking. Um, but like at 35, like when you're preaching regularly and like leading, and then you're like, I don't think I really believe this stuff that I'm preaching. That's not a good thing. That's not how you want to lead a sermon, you know? I'm going to talk about this text, but I believe it's baloney, right? Like <laughs> that's not how you start it. But I found that at the end of the day, I felt like I couldn't, you know, sad. I had to say to him as a pastor, but I felt like I wasn't in a safe place. Crazy, right? Like, I had to say so in creating a safe place, but all I knew to do was try to build toxicity around being right, being safe, and having all my lines in place. I think for a lot of us, what we find, though, is that we go through this phase that something was handed to us, a faith, a view, an approach to God, and I think it really worked. I'm very grateful for the foundation I was given growing up. As much that I may find that it was some crazy stuff at times I was experiencing within the charismania world of, like, turn on TBN and, like, there's my childhood, <laughs> like, as much as that might happen... I'm so grateful because I still know that I met Jesus at a young age. I'm grateful for that. That said, no matter how much I found constructed in my life, what I couldn't give permission for was a deconstruction of what was given to me in my life. But here's the thing. If we can't talk about what we're deconstructing from, 
will never have permission to reconstruct something new. If you can't have a safe enough place to talk about that you're doubting your faith, your whole life and existence, and who is God in the first place, and what pronoun do I use for God, and what do I think about this or that? If you can't do that, you're going to sit on it, it's going to get sour, and you're going to be done. What you're going to find is you're going to want to discard the whole thing, which is where a lot of, I believe, people find themselves today. Some of us wonder why we're still so, like, not good with God after years and years. And I'm not here to judge, but I am here to suggest it could be that, like, we get used to being deconstructed. We get used to staying in the state where, you know, C.S. Lewis once said that the point of a window is that the garden is opaque. That if you go through seeing through everything in life, there's nothing to be seen. If we're so proud of how we get to see through, like, we well, see what's happening there in that text, and you see how that's myth, and you see how that's not true, or what about a virgin birth? Are you kidding me? Like, if, you, if that's all we can do, then we never get something that actually is worthwhile. We're just so proud and hooked on what we can see through. And what we find is that we never get to a Jesus that we read in the Gospels that once again brings us to our needs and goes, goodness, this is the person I want to follow. This is the person I want to interact with. And I would suggest your problem is not Jesus. Your problem is the person talking about Jesus. Your problem is not faith or Christianity itself. The problem was those who handed it to you. And so here's the question. How do you get behind the thing to get to the thing without discarding the thing? Like, how do you get behind what was handed to you to get to what you're really looking for without trying to just discard the thing that was handed to you in the first place? Like, your constructed worldview and order of faith was helpful for a while. No need to, like, go, well, that was crap. Had horrible parents, horrible people. Like, what? Maybe, maybe God could be big enough to hand you that. But then until you're honest enough to dive into what was handed to you and to take that dark, deep journey into something more, you'll never come out on the other side with a faith that could be reconstructed and beautiful. Because that's the other side here that we want to provide at our church. That not only is this a place for you to come deconstruct all the junk that was handed to you, but also that you could find something at your own pace, in your own time, through God's grace, something that works. Because friends, at the end of the day, what I want is, is a God that is near. I don't want to talk about God being near. I want a God that's near. I don't want to talk about a Jesus who is so loving to others. I want to talk about a Jesus that is near and loving to me. In your bulletins, Richard Rohr, he said it this way. You don't move to the next level of faith without going through a necessary period of darkness. When you've never had that in your background, and it's all about building this coherent, consistent system where you actually love your understanding of faith, well, this is not the love of God anymore. This is an idol called certitude. So when bits of darkness or an actual faith journey are asked of people, they think they're losing their faith when, in fact, the great ones would say, you're finally finding it. Sociologists 
studies have shown, and this number grows 1% to 2% every year, that over 44% of people will go through a major transition and crisis of faith. Just so you know. And what Mike Hargrove, I'm sorry, Mike Hargrove goes on to say is that that can be from Christian nomination to another nomination. That can be from belief to atheism. That can also be from secularism to some form of religiosity. But the point is this, that that number 44% is big. So here's what I want you to think about for a second. Every other person you meet will go through a deconstruction of their faith. Every other person in this room, what that means is will go through a deconstruction of their faith. The question is this. The question is this. Will you offer them a safe place to go through that where they can heal? Or will you shame them into having to see things the way you see them? Or the third option, because you don't know how not to shame, you just stay away and never build a relationship and have a chance at more transformation in your own life. I'm proud that we have a lot of people from different sides and perspectives in this room, but here's the thing I'm not proud of. Until you learn to build relationships with one another, what's the point? Until you learn to see another person and know their story, all we're doing is trying to keep ourselves encapsulated in a safe place where nobody gets to poke against how I see things. Well, here's what I believe, and here's what we're trying to be about as a church. If you're willing to let that happen, I don't think that means your views have to change, but I do think something becomes richer and maybe even more healed. You know, if we are harmed through relationships, guess what? You can only be healed through relationships. And I believe a community that's centered around a crisis that loving and healing can really express something beautiful together. And we can find that kind of healing together and be a church, and be a church that's not harmful to the world around us. Let's pray. So, Lord, this morning as we come to your table, our ask is simple, that you would um, meet us here, that you would let us know that no matter how far down the scale we have gone, there is always more room for hope. And no matter what the story has been for people in this room who have found themselves maybe harmed by the church, that they don't have to spend all their time getting away from the church. And that for those in this room maybe that have been mindless about even how harmful the church can be, they don't spend all their time trying to be right with those who come to church. But that we would be a people willing to live in a lots of humility of seeing one another, being with one another, and facing this religiosity that can so bind us. In your name we pray, amen.